Now the year is 1993. Haik of is serving as a pastor in the Islamic State of Iran. He is based in Tehran and is working there for the Assemblies of God churches in, in Tehran. Uh, Pastor Aik is originally Armenian, but he was born uh, in Iran and is serving there in the year 1993. Uh, Pastor Aik has come to the capital city to serve as a pastor uh, in this capital city of Iran just as the supreme leader uh, of Iran has banned any Christian evangelism. But Aik is fearless. Uh, he refuses to yield to the government pressure. He says, if we go to jail or die for our faith, we will not yield to these demands. And among the new converts who have been imprisoned by the new Islamic regime is Pastor Mehdi. Pastor Mehdi has been sentenced to 10 years in prison. And while he's in prison, he's being beaten. Uh, they constantly torture him and confine him to a small, unlit three-yard cell. The regime is trying to pressure Pastor Mehdi to renounce his faith in Jesus. But he says to them, I am not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of his holy name, but I'm ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus my Lord. After Pastor Mary has been in prison for 10 years, he's released. And the secret tribunal is convened and Pastor Mary is sentenced to death. And all that remains is to be executed. In the meantime, the regime is denying that Pastor Mary is about to be executed. But Pastor Ike He's having none of it. He immediately goes public with the story. Uh, he starts calling the media abroad. He starts telling Christians abroad. He's saying, we have a pastor in Tehran who's about to die for their faith. And the regime in Iran is causing terrible violation of religious freedom. And so with public pressure, uh, the, the regime is forced to act. They, they, they release Pastor Mehdi. That year, on January 16th, um, Pastor Mary is released from prison. And there is much celebration and joy in the infant, in the Iranian church. But it doesn't last. Uh, on 19th of January, Pastor Aik, who worked so hard to get Pastor Mary released, is abducted from the streets of Tehran. The police in Tehran claim they cannot find Pastor Aik. But a laborer in a Muslim cemetery in the city remembers burying the brutalized body of a man with a cross attached to his jacket. Ten days later, Pastor H's tortured body is exhumed from an unmarked grave in the Muslim cemetery. He has 27 stab wounds in his chest. So a funeral is held, 2,000 people gather at the grave site in the rain for a reburial in a Christian cemetery. And there are many Muslims present to come to witness this reburial of this faithful Christian. A tearful pastor, Pastor Mehdi, 
who was released, gets up and addresses the mourners. Six months later, Pastor Mary joins Pastor Ake. His body is found in a Tehran park. He has been stabbed also in the heart for Jesus. When I read that story, it sent so many different feelings. And I, and I wonder, how are you feeling inside as you hear this story? Are you sad and perhaps thinking, what a tragedy to die in such away. Or perhaps you're feeling confused. God can stop it. So why is he letting his children to die just like this? Why let the regime in Iran just get away with the murder of these two faithful brothers? All of those questions are important and you may have many more questions, right? But I want you to ask the most important question, I think, which is this. How does Jesus expect us to react to such persecution, to our persecution, our opposition, when we face deep opposition? I want us to ask that question because, you see, if you're a true follower of Jesus, you are not your own. You have been bought at a high price. When you surrender your life to Jesus, you surrender to him, and he was now, he's now in control of your life. You belong to him. We belong to him in Christ. Therefore, we should live by his opinion, his view, right? Not our own view. We need to ask, how does Jesus expect us to react to our persecution in this world? And we need to know the answer of how Jesus expects us, because according to a recent government report, published in 2019 by the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, the persecutions of Christians around the world is actually getting worse. Uh, the, HM, the, the government report chronicles violence against Christians, including bombing of churches, for example, in Nigeria, Pakistan, we've seen it in Nepal, extrajudicial killings of Christians, torture, abductions, and sexual violence. A, a report in 2017 by um, SEN, an organization that aids churches in need, it's called Aid, Aid for Churches in Need. It says this, in terms of the numbers and the gravity of crimes, the persecution of Christians is today worse than any time in history. That's quite a statement, isn't it? When you think about what's gone on in history, even during the time of Christ. So we need to know because it's getting worse for Christians around the world. But we also need to know the answer because even in the UK, we, are, we may be free from violent persecution, but we are actually not free from social persecution. True followers of Jesus are increasingly being marginalized in the UK. We are called bigots for speaking on issues of gender and sexuality. We cannot live out our faith anymore at places of work. You, you, dare be, you must be very careful what you preach out there. People are being arrested left, right, and center simply for reading out the Bible loud. So we need to know Jesus expects us in this increasingly, in this culture where persecution, as we've been going through Mark 13, is we should understand it that it's likely to get worse because that's what the Lord Jesus prophesied. But you also need to know about this, not just because it's persecution in the world, persecu social persecution 
in the, in the UK, but you need to know that because you will face, you are probably facing strong opposition to your faith in different ways. You might not describe it as persecution, but you are, we all as believers, if we're truly believers, we face tr strong opposition for our faith. Now, most of the opposition, of course, is only known to our, most of the opposition is only known to ourselves. Friends no longer talk to you because you are open about your faith in Jesus. Colleagues at work cut you off from certain things because you are always raising difficult moral questions about how you work and how they work. Or perhaps in families, uh, somebody, members of a family may not like that because, because you're, you, know, you want to raise your children in a Christian way and your partner, your, your, your spouse may not share that view. And it's very hard and you feel very opposed there. And sometimes in churches, isn't it? Not all who are in churches have faith. And so we are likely to face opposition among Christians uh, in, our, in our churches. Uh, how does Jesus want us to react to such opposition? Well, the answer is in the passage we're looking at today, all of today, really to understand what's going on here, what you need to do, what you need, what Jesus wants you to, how Jesus wants you to react, you need to come morning and evening. But this morning, particularly, we're looking at verse 9 to verse 11 of Mark 13. Now, if you've been with us, you know already that Jesus is in his final week in Jerusalem. It's a Tuesday. He's at the Mount of Olives now. The disciples want to get more data from Jesus about his prophecy concerning the destruction of Jerusalem. That's, where, that's, where, that's the context. And we read that from the first four verses that our brother David, brother uh, Victor read for us. Mark 13, verse 1 to 4. I'll just read for you there to refresh your memory. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? We said last week that there are two questions they are asking. When will the temple be destroyed? And how are we going to know it is, going to, it is happening? It is coming. And as we noted, the underlying assumption in their question is that the disciples believe the end of the temple means the end of the world. And so Jesus' response in Mark 13 uh, is dealing with the issues the disciples will face in their lifetime and also the issues that believers after them will face. There is something beyond, before AD 70 happening in this text and there's something after AD 70 till the end of time happening in this text. And that's what we've been we're trying to unravel as we work through this complex part of the Bible. Last Sunday, uh, we looked at verse 5 to verse 8, which deal with the disasters the apostles will face in their lifetime. But we also pointed out that the disasters they are facing are the beginning of the birth pains that the world is like, is, will face after AD 70. Because Jesus himself says that in verse 8. Now, in verse 9 to 13, which we are looking at today, Jesus is dealing with the persecution that all followers of Jesus will face. And again, these persecutions are related to what the disciples will face, but also they are the beginning of the birth pains that the persecution we are likely to face. 
So we're looking at first of all this morning, verse 9 to 11. And there are just three truths um, I want to share here uh, that answer that most important question. How does Jesus expect us to react to our persecution from the world? Well, the first answer is we must expect God to allow our persecution. We must expect persecution. Jesus starts by calling on his followers to be watchful or be prepared for what's coming around the corner. Don't let persecution take you by surprise. Expect it. Don't let opposition take you like something strange has happened to you. You're being opposed. Expect it. Look at verse 9. But be on your guard or watch out for they will deliver you over to councils and you'll be beaten in synagogues and you stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. Jesus is so caring, isn't he, towards us? He's so loving, he's so wonderful, he's so caring that he does not want us to live or confront life unprepared. He wants us to be ready for the difficult road ahead. And so he gives us his word, the Bible, doesn't he? But for the apostles, they got... Jesus' actual words, and he's preparing them. And the Bible, of course, is Jesus' actual words. But if you know what I mean, they got it live, unrecorded, so to speak. Right? We've got the recorded words of Jesus. And here he's saying to them, isn't it? Jesus is saying to his followers, expect to suffer for me. It's important you understand that the religious and secular authorities will combine to set aside justice and inflict unfair punishment on your backs, just because you are my followers. That's why he's telling them in verse 9. They will deliver you over to councils. You'll be beaten. By the way, beaten there literally means you'll be skinned off. You'll be flogged to the skin in synagogues. And you'll stand before governors, gentle rulers and kings for my sake. And this is, of course, what happened to Jesus himself, isn't it? That, that, that happened to Jesus. Beaten, flogged, persecuted, killed as we see later on in verse 12 onwards, uh, for the disciples. Those things are mentioned, death. But it also happened to Jesus. So what Jesus is saying is to his followers, you experience the same oppression I am about to suffer in a couple of days' time. You experience that after I'm gone. And Jesus is so honest about that. He doesn't want us to think he's, he's leading us to somewhere and you cry out and say, oh Lord, I didn't know there was going to be so much persecution. He's, he's saying... This is, this is also on the table for you. And we know this is what happened to the disciples. We read about it in Acts, and we read about the suffering they endured. We read about the many floggings and imprisonment. You just have to pick 2 Corinthians and read about Paul's floggings, 40 lashes less one, all of that stuff. And this is actually what the original readers of the Gospel of Mark also are experiencing. This Gospel has been written to them, and as they are reading this, they are reading what they are experiencing. They are non-Jews like us, and they are also suffering terribly for Jesus. As they read these words in Mark, they are in their catacombs, running from Nero, and they are swapping real stories of the mad Emperor Nero burning Christians alive as torches. The persecution is not taking them by surprise. They expect it. 
Because Jesus said it will come and continue to increase until the end. At this time in Rome, by the way, Paul and Peter have already been martyred. And the Christians are not surprised because of Mark 13, verse 9. And they are not surprised because of Mark 13, verse 8. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. The birth pains include what's coming after verse 8. Verse 9 to verse 13. We must expect God to continue allowing us to be persecuted for Jesus. We, here, living in our time. And we must expect it to get worse. We must not think as we hear of Pastor Eric and Pastor Mary and others suffering around the world as we hear of uh, Pastor Wang here recently now imprisoned in China for nine years. The church burned down. We shouldn't expect that to be a strange thing. No, it's not strange. And it's not a tragedy either. Because God is not out of control, is not lacking control of the situation. No, any opposition we face in this world is under God's watch. Listen, we suffer for Jesus and under Jesus. He is our great shepherd who allows us to experience deep opposition, suffering, and persecution. And we said that since AD 70, when Jerusalem was destroyed, the end time clock of Mark 13 is ticking, isn't it? The fire of God's judgment has been lit by God himself, right? The devil, of course, has been defeated on the cross, and he knows his time as he reads Mark 13, he knows his time is running out before Jesus appears. And he's now on a mission to oppose the church. He's on a mission to destroy you, to oppose you. And yet in the middle of all of this, God is in full control. It is God who willingly allows us to be persecuted by Satan and the world. God is not the cause of persecution, but he allows it. And is sovereign over it. So as followers of Jesus, as you sit here this morning, expect opposition from your family, first and foremost, because if they are not true followers of Jesus, it is normal for them to hate Christ in you. You need to understand that. They may love you at a human level, but as they look at you, they see something they hate. They hate the Jesus in you. Expect opposition even, as I said, from professing Christians. Because not all Christians have true faith. Some will pull you down. Do not be surprised by that. And I just make this point because a lot of us get so disappointed with church. But people will pull us down. Expect opposition at school, don't we? Expect opposition at school. There will be people at school who do not share your faith. And they will pull you down just for quoting the Bible. And they will look at that in a very negative way. You see, do not be surprised, beloved, by these things. You see, many people think that Jesus suffered on the cross so that we do not have to experience any more persecution. That's the prosperity gospel, isn't it? They are like, Jesus suffered. He's already suffered. What are you talking about suffering? The whole point is always that I don't have to suffer now. No, but Jesus is speaking, isn't he? And he's saying that is a lie from the devil. Jesus is telling us plainly here the opposite. He's saying, if you are a true follower of Jesus, you will be persecuted for me because of your faith 
in me. And that raises a question, doesn't it? Why does God allow us to be persecuted? Why does he do that? Well, that's the second point I just want to touch on here. The first point is that we must expect God to allow our persecution. Why? Well, we must expect God to allow to use our persecution for the good news of Jesus, for the gospel. God allows us to be persecuted for the spread of the gospel. Now, you need to pause on that and recognize that is counterintuitive, isn't it? It sounds quite counterintuitive. You, are, you, you want your child to succeed at school, right? Don't you? Right? You want your daughter, your son, you want Elijah to make it, right? Even, even reception, right? You're not going to persecute him on the way there, are you? You want to make it as comfortable as possible as he lands there in the class. So what, what the Bible is telling us is counterintuitive to the way we think things are done. It should be the other way around, shouldn't it? Surely in life we remove obstacles to our message so that they, it can be well received. Surely as we preach, we shouldn't offend because we want them to hear and be on our side. That's the way life works, isn't it? Yes, except the good news of Jesus. Because the good news of Jesus, you see, is a glorious fire carried by the winds of affliction. That is spread through persecution, not despite persecution. That's what verse 9 to 11 is telling us. Let's read those three verses. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you'll be beaten in synagogues, and you stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. Verse 10. And the gospel must first be preached, proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you, do not be anxious beforehand what you, what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that moment. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. You know, if you're reading these verses, and you should read through them, you'll realize that verse 10 looks like it's interrupting the flow. The theme of verse 9 and 10 is the same. Verse 9 and 11 is the same. But verse 10 looks a bit odd. You know, he's talking about persecution. Then he goes, and the gospel must first be proclaimed. Then it goes back to persecution. It seems to interrupt. And because we're going together in Mac, that should already trick something, shouldn't it? Because what we have here is one, another of those delicious Mac and sandwiches, right? As we've been seeing in Mac, as we've been going through Mac, we've realized that Mac likes statements or stories that are sandwiched, where one statement starts, then it is interrupted by another, and then back to the first statement. Or one story starts, interrupted by another, and back to the original story. So in effect, the first statement and the third statements frame the second statement in the middle. It is meant to draw attention to the middle. They are like arrows pointing to the middle so you don't miss it. And in this case, the fierce Opposition to the disciples is the outer topic of verse 9 and verse 11. But in the middle is the spread of the good news of Jesus. And, and, and what Matt is drawing attention to and what Jesus is saying, here is Jesus is not just saying that the persecution against followers of Jesus will not succeed. Verse 11, verse 10 does say that it will not succeed until the end time Come, it will be proclaimed until the end time comes. But what Jesus is saying in verse 10, what Mark wants to draw attention to is that Jesus is saying, it is part of the vehicle. Persecution is part of the vehicle to spread the gospel. It sits on 9 and 11. It's being driven, if you like, by persecution. The persecution of the church 
uh, when it comes, Jesus is saying, will be like smashing the atom. It will produce unstoppable gospel power and energy of enormous quantity. From something small, when it smashes the atom, power will be generated. That's what Jesus is saying. And this is what happened in the early church, isn't it? If you flick over to Acts 8, verse 1 to 4, um, it's a wonderful passage. Acts 8, verse 1 to 4, and then keep your fingers back on Mark 13. Because in Acts 8, verse 1 to 4, we read this, don't we? Just a fulfillment of this prophecy. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They went about preaching the word. And soon as we read that passage, we read Acts chapter 8, we hear that Samaria will receive the gospel and Philip will go over there and Peter himself, I think, visits Samaria. And the gospel just keeps spreading as persecution has led to new church plants already. A fulfillment of Acts 1, you'll be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And that's how it's being fulfilled, through persecution. You see, when the regime in Iran killed Pastor Aik and Pastor Mehdi, they thought they would quench the fire of the gospel. But the opposite actually has happened in Iran. In the years following their deaths, Iranians found, Iranian Christians found heroes worth emulating in their board examples. These men actually from different backgrounds, Pastor Mehdi is from an Islamic background, Pastor Ache is from an Armenian background, but they are loved one another. All of that has characterized the, the Iranian church. And, 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 and what's been happening is that, as a documentary released last year shows, Iran is now as the fastest growing church on earth. The fastest growing church on earth. Many Iranians are coming to know Christ than ever before. In fact, one underground Iranian church leader went as far to say, what if I told you that Islam is dead in Iran? What if I told you what you see on TV isn't what is actually happening on the ground? What if I told you the mosques are actually emptying in Iran? God is moving powerfully inside Iran. And we believe, this is what he says, that the Ayatollah Khomeini's persecution of believers is the best evangelism for Jesus. The fires of the gospel cannot be dumped out by the waters of human persecution. Persecution only adds fuel to the fire of our evangelism. And most importantly here, Jesus um, is assuring us, isn't it, all his followers, that we will keep sharing the gospel until the whole world hears it. That's the force of verse 10. And the gospel must be proclaimed to all the nations. Nothing will quench the fire of the gospel. Because it rides on the waters of persecution. What does this all mean for us here? Well, it means, first of all, if you are facing opposition, do not waste it. Do not waste it. God has brought about that situation. We must understand that. 
And he has brought about it in your life for the gospel. If you're facing any opposition, God is the one who has sovereignly purposed it. What the devil meant for evil, God has purposed it for good. You know, it is striking that when the disciples faced opposition in Acts, read Acts carefully, they did not pray for deliverance. They prayed for boldness to share Jesus. And it's very interesting, Nip Gripkin in his book, The Insanity of God, makes this point. He's gone around the persecuted world. He's asked believers after believers. No one of them is asking for persecution to end. He has never met any who has asked for persecution to end. He says all of them are asking for faithfulness. Faithfulness to proclaim Christ. They don't want to deny him when that time comes. They're asking for boldness. They're asking God to use this for his glory. And that's why we must pray in our lives when we face persecution. When we face opposition at work, at home, wherever God has placed us, at a sports club, the question isn't the persecution you're facing or the, the opposition you're facing. The question is, are you willing for God to use your difficult circumstance that difficult circumstance, even a difficult circumstance in this country, for the spread of the good news of Jesus. Yes, your wife does not share your devotion to Jesus. Yes, you cannot talk about Jesus at work as freely as you'd like. Yes, other Christians do not support you as they should. We don't support you as we should. Yes, every time you under flyers, people call you scum, and many other people ignore you, right? These things are true, and these things are hurtful. They hurt us. And God is saying he has allowed these things somehow as opportunities to grow you and enable you to share Jesus with others. Keep your eye on sharing Jesus. I'm not saying we should, we should simply accept the situations, but we should recognize the bigger picture, even as we seek to respond to them. Are you willing to accept that? And are you willing... Accept that God is sovereign over your situation. Are you willing to ask God to help you to be a witness in that situation until he removes that situation? Are you asking God to help you not waste your suffering or the opposition you're facing? Or are you just keep waiting for the perfect time? Many of us wait for the perfect time to live for Jesus. So we find ourselves that in the middle of suffering, we are just merely existing rather than actively praying to God to use us and to lead us. Well, God's will for you is not to, um, to, 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 to waste your suffering. His will for you is to be glorified in your current situation. So today, tell the Lord that until he desires to lift this burden, you want him to use it to grow you in living for him in, this, in the middle of such opposition. Or until God makes it very clear in one way or another on how you should respond. Surrender to his will. And you can be sure that in the middle of challenges that the world is throwing at you, right, God is there as your help. Because that's the final truth we see in this passage. How should we respond? First of all, we must expect God to allow our persecution. Secondly, we must expect God to use our persecution for the gospel. And finally, we can expect God to help us in our persecution. We can expect the help of God when we face opposition. 
That's the third and final truth. Increasing opportunity in our lives, you see, can make us deeply anxious. It makes us worried. It makes us wonder, what does the future hold for us? What, what are, how will I respond to the challenges around me? All suffering raises those questions. What does, what does the future hold for me? But Jesus says, here, Jesus says here simply, you do not need to worry about whatever you're going through. If you are my follower, you don't need to worry. You don't need to worry about position. Because you're not alone. You must expect God the Spirit to help you. Look at verse 11. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you, do not be anxious beforehand what you have to say, but say whatever is given you in that house. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. We can, I think we'll have, we, can, we can spend the whole two sermons just unpacking that verse. Right? And you'll be tired because you want to you wanna get, get on to study the abomination that causes desolation, don't you? So we're not going to spend two sermons on that. I know that's why you're waiting for, right? We're not going to spend two sermons on verse 11, right? The point Jesus is saying is this. I have already made provision for your opposition. That's the point he's making. Do not rely on yourself. Jesus is God the Son, and he's saying God the Spirit is going, going to be there to strengthen, guide you, because he, he lives in you. Whatever is making you anxious, Jesus is saying, trust God the Spirit. Trust in God. And throughout Mark, we've been coming back to those wonderful verses that Jesus told the disciples, isn't it? Have faith in God, he said to them. You see, God is not a bystander to the opposition you're facing. You know, God is not there twiddling his thumbs, you know, when he sees you praying for help. No, no, no. He's there with you. He's in your situation. I love that what he says in verse 11. Do not be anxious beforehand what you're going to say. If it's what you need, he'll provide. Say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. He will be there to help you. If you need to be silent, he'll help you be silent. If you need to speak, he'll help you to speak. You see, the antidote, the, the message Jesus is, rather, is saying here is that God knows all about your situation. Yes, you often feel like you're doing life alone without him. You're looking for direction, but he's already there guiding you. And the words of Jesus here is the word of God, and, and he's giving you the word of God. He has provided it to reassure you. He's saying, hear me, do not be anxious. The, the antidote to whatever anxiety we feel as followers of Jesus about the future, about opposition, or whatever situation is arising, family members, wherever we are, is to read the word and hear Jesus speak to us. Do not be anxious before one. The Holy Spirit is there and you provide the help you need. And I think you need to remind yourself of this truth that he will never leave you nor forsake you. I need to remind myself of this truth. Because I, mean, I get very anxious. I don't think that, that those words are the reason for, um, for not preparing a sermon. Right? I still need to kind of care to have the sermon ready. But the, the general principle is there, isn't it? We can spend so much time planning, doing this and that, sister. We're having this chat with Sister Sandra in the morning before praying that we can plan our lives. But it's good to know that God is in charge and often he leads us by circumstances, doesn't he? So we shouldn't be anxious. You see, all of us need to remember, you see, that you are not a Christian because you are a good person. No. There's no one good here. 
There's no one good. If you think you're going to heaven because you're a good person, you're not going there. It's that simple. No one gets to heaven because they are good. All of us are sinners. We are saved only by the grace of God in Jesus. And the first thing we have to recognize to be born again is to realize that we are not good. We need the grace of God in Christ. And Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for our sin. And it is through that death of Jesus on the cross that we are saved. And it is through that death of Jesus on the cross that we remain Christians. We are kept by the blood of Christ and the work of the Spirit. So if you're a Christian and you remain a Christian by the cross, then you need to keep depending on the cross. Paul says, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, he tells the church at Colossians. How did you receive Christ Jesus as Lord? You did nothing. You just surrendered yourself to him. And so you must continue surrendering yourself to him. In whatever opposition you face, in whatever struggle, whatever suffering, you do not need to depend on you. You can be sure that God has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. The God who has saved you by his precious blood, he's not about to abandon you now, is he? He's not about to give up on you. Jesus, God says in the Old Testament, speaking of Israel, how can I give you up, Jacob? God is not about to give up on his people. The Lord never changes his mind concerning his promises. So trust him. God will not abandon you. He will keep you through persecution and opposition you face. So keep depending on him. Keep going to him in prayer. That's how we hand it back to God. Keep reading his word so that you are refreshed. Know how to read the Bible. Come to talk to me about it if you want to know how to study the Bible. And we'll go through it together. And keep asking him to use your situation to grow you and share the gospel with others. If you're going to mourn, which is fine, you're going to mourn about the situation you're facing in your life, at home especially, or, or, or whatever. We all mourn. I mourn all the time, right? But let's bring our mourning to the Lord, right? As Tim Chester reminds us, Christians groan, yes. But the difference is that, we, unlike the world, we do not just we do not groan backwards. We groan forward. We groan because we long for heaven. We groan because we long for God's glory, don't we? We, we groan because of that. And therefore, let us bring our groan to God to use us in whatever situation he is. So then how do we respond? Well, we must expect God to allow our persecution, expect God to use our persecution for the gospel, and expect God to help us in our persecution. And this evening, we'll look at verse 12 to 13 and to see two, two more answers that Jesus has for us. Uh, in terms of how we respond to this.